following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers. And if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Theme song, theme song. Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a twice-monthly book review and discussion podcast who sometimes isn't twice-monthly, specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Ruiz Tremello, and I am actually Banksy. And my name is Marguerite, and I, too, am also Banksy. Together we travel the world, two of the 75 members of the Banksy Collective, hunting down and murdering sentient robots. And this week we are in Buckinghamshire, Mongolia, somewhere on the Eurasian steep. Now you may think there aren't very many sentient robots on the Mongolian steppe, but you would be right, we haven't met a single one. But we're not here to talk about how lost we are now. That's right, Marguerite, because we're actually here to discuss Alien Night by Thomas Scorcia from 1957. Today's novella comes to us from a collection of three novellas titled... Get out of my sky. That's what I'm going to say when I'm an old-timey, future old person. Selected by Leo Margulies. Marguerite, would you be so kind as to describe the cover for our listeners? I guess. So right in the middle, there is a planet, and one side's pink, and the other side is brown, and there's some kind of dark vagina-looking thing in the middle of it. That is quite vaginal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a long, slitty hole. Delightfully <laughs> slitty, I guess. And then at the bottom, we've got, I don't, maybe it's just this air, but like more Kandinsky-esque creatures. Uh, they are just abstract. And then I think they're creatures, and maybe in the background, some kind of like, eh, maybe a city. Maybe just like poles sticking up out of the sky. So, Alien Night is the third of the three novellas in this collection, Get Out of My Sky, and my favorite of the three as well. I actually don't even remember the first two by uh, James Blish and Paul Anderson. Mm, Screw them. Yeah. Well, actually, I like them both. They're fantastic. (laughs) So the era in which our story takes place is far future dystopian America. It's at least the year 3000, but it's probably a little past that. And when I say dystopian America, I mean America. Yeah, I was going to say, how can it be worse? Uh, A little bit more of the context of the dystopian nature of it will come out shortly. But let's begin with the first sentences. Get away from that window! The words axed through Kenneth Hubbard's thoughts, Hmm. scattering them in jagged fragments. His muscles knotted in abrupt panic. For an instant, he felt the cold air on his face. His body swayed toward the deep abyss outside the open window of the Universal Building. Hmm. Someone's dramatic. And, standing dramatically, as you stated, at the open window on the 70th floor of an office tower, Kenneth Huber, our main character protagonist, sinks to his knees, clutching at the window frame, his body convulsing. Ugh, extra. He fights to stay conscious, and after what seems like an eternity, his description not mine, medical executive Thomas Dykeman grabs Ken's shoulders and pulls him from the window, helping him into a chair with the assistance of his assistant, Besser. Dykeman scolds Ken for trying to kill himself. Oh, is that what was going on? Awkwardly, Ken doesn't remember trying to kill himself. Oof, awkward. And in fact thinks that something had seized his body and forced him to the open window. Sure. Dykeman goes on to say, Ken knows he can't kill himself anyway, of course. 
The citywide het field knocks people unconscious when they try to commit suicide. Huh. Hmm. And that was the force that was trying to put Ken to sleep. Oh, this must be a terrible dystopia if they actually have to actively prevent people from trying to kill themselves. Also, the building has suicide nets installed. Oh my god, this place must be the worst. <laughs> or is that just like that building? Maybe that place of uh, employment sucks. Oh no, it's every building. Yeah, every building. Sure, Ken says, the company can't have anyone dying in its happy, happy world. Yeah, this doesn't really sound like America. America doesn't really care that much. <laughs> Things have changed. <laughs> Not by their own hands, particularly, Dykeman agrees. Going on to say, the next damn thing, he'll be trying to join a hunt club. Oh no, not a hunt club. Ken sighs and provides us with a convenient info dump, talking about how, in the future, you get an age-extending injection every 25 years. Hmm. And android ambulances are only a few minutes away from everyone at all times. And safety devices are everywhere, like suicide nets and the heterodyne fields. Mm-hmm. Quote, the only way a man can die in this world of yours is through an accident in some out-of-the-way place, or if someone deliberately kills him in a hunt. Oh. That's a hunt club. Oh, okay, that sounds way better than I was thinking. I thought it was just like some lame-ass men's club. No, no, we're talking the dangerous game. The most dangerous game. The most game. dangerous game. So, wait. America's like, we won't let you kill yourself, but we sure will let other people kill you. Well. That kind of still sounds like America. <laughs> To illustrate his point, Ken references the file on Dykeman's desk. The result of Ken doing his job, because you see, there's a super rare blood condition that can't be cured, and there are ten people on the continent who have that blood condition. So Ken was hired by the company to find where two of them live, and he insinuates that the company is going to kill them in order to remove the disease from the gene pool. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, that still sounds kind of American-ish. They argue for a while before Ken spends some time adjusting his fashionable Harlequin costume. That's right, he's wearing a Harlequin costume, complete with a mask and four-point hat with jingling bells. Oh, what is going on here? Tonight. This is truly a dystopia. Tonight in Universal City, it's the night-long unnamed carnival. We like the purge? To celebrate the end of the five-day examination period. <sighs> I retract my America call. They still wouldn't care. Ken leaves Dykeman's office basically insubordinate but completely loyal to the company. He heads down the elevator and wonders what it'd be like if the elevator failed and he plummeted to his death. As one does. Heading out of the building and across the plaza, Ken passes the giant statue of Mindtrup, holding the double peptide molecule that has granted longevity to the world. Mm -hmm. Reaching a cafe, Ken orders a scotch and water from a blue-skinned android waiter and heads for a vidphone booth. Turns out that uh, about a month previous, Dykeman had ordered Ken to infiltrate a hunt club through a company executive named Wartman. Wartman answers the vidphone, and Ken tells him he wants in for a hunt. Wartman answers, you know, this time actually, Ken's supposed to be the quarry. Oh, wow. And uh, Ken says, yeah, that'll be fine. What? And Wartman says, well, I guess the hunt will start in an hour. And Ken has the choice of what kind of weapons will be used. Ken says, no restrictions. Ah, oh, ner nerfs balls. <laughs> Wartman says, quote, Spaghetti. But this throws the advantage all toward your opponent, Ken. Knowledge of identity, choice of weapons, that's equivalent to signing your death warrant. Oh yeah, he wanted to die. That's what I want, Ken replies. 
going on to say, Tell your men I'll be at the Café Duval in an hour. Waiting for them to kill me. This is going to be the most boring hunt ever. Let him come and kill me, if he can. He can. (laughs) Chapter 2. Ken sits at the café and hates everyone and everything around him. Oh, just like me when I'm at a café. Apparently bored of his longevity, because he's several hundred years old at least. Oh, yeah, see, that that would happen. Especially if you're living in America. (laughs) He glances around to try and spot his future killer, and eventually meets eyes with a gray-haired man. A man with killer eyes. Mm. Ooh, like sexy... Perhaps. Getting up from the cafe and heading into the street, the man stands and follows him into the celebratory crowd. But there's something wrong. Turns out his killer isn't following him properly. Or at all. Oh, he picked the wrong guy. Turns out his killer is actually following a girl with blue-black hair who was also at the cafe. Quote, Another hunt? Or could she be a decoy? Planted to lure him into the open. As though he wasn't in the open previous. He told him where he was. Unsure what to do, Ken decides to follow the soon-to-be killer as the he follows the girl. Over the course of the page, Ken manages to grab the girl's hand, and together they evade the killer, run around the busy streets for a bit, and then find an empty restaurant near the edge of the city. Ken asks the girl why she'd ever be involved in a hunt. She replies, A hunt? I don't know. A desire for something different. Something exciting. Have you ever been appalled by the uselessness of life? <laughs> I've been appalled by the uselessness of other people. (laughs) Nothing to look forward to, not even death. Ken proceeds to play an awkward devil's advocate. (laughs) Saying that uh, they're living in a utopia. Sure. But the girl replies, it's a planned and perfect city built by the company a thousand years ago. Whoa. And nothing has changed since. Yeah, that would be boring. It represents the height of technology of the era in which it was built a thousand years ago. Oh, hmm. Nobody wants to invent anything else? Apparently. But they're bored. Bored's like how people invent, isn't it? You would think. (laughs) They lightheartedly argue the benefits of cultural stability versus the drawbacks of cultural stagnation. Then look up at some adorable buzzing mayflies. Meanwhile, you know, they're being hunted, whatever. Just had to go (laughs) on a nice little date. They only live for a day, the girl says. How ironic. Ugh, she's so emo. Ken invites the nameless girl to a party in the city, so they leave the restaurant to find the streets completely, eerily deserted. I was just going to say, they're still being hunted, right? You know, Ken admits, I'm in a hunt too. I was waiting to be killed, but somehow I've suddenly changed my mind. Hmm, I decided to bring you in on this, so that you have two people hunting you. Nameless brunette suddenly stiffens, her body language awkward. Uh, I don't like you, man. I don't like you like that. Uh, We're just friends. Ken's internal alarms go off, and he pulls her toward him, throwing her purse to the street. The vibro knife she was reaching for clatters away. (laughs) She dives for the knife and can't reach it. Turns and claws at his face instead. Effective. He kisses her. Oh, dude. Read the room. Fireworks go off. Actual fireworks. (laughs) But then, three bright lights move across the sky. Meteors. Tracing brilliant lines as they streak through the atmosphere. But then one of the lights begins weaving, twisting, and falls sharply down towards the edge of the city. A second light slows down and follows it while the third races on. While Ken's distracted by the lights, the nameless girl escapes his grasp and runs away. Hmm. Ken's already forgotten about her. Wow, really? Thinking only 
someone's trying to bomb the city. Why does he care? Because he's inconsistent as a character. <laughs> he does whatever the plot tells him to, of course. Of course. He heads back to the city and grabs a company helicopter. Setting... You can just do that? Well, he is uh, in the company. Right, but how high in the company? Does everyone get access to a helicopter? Definitely not. Huh. He sets Dykeman's country house as the destination on the autopilot. And as he flies, Ken thinks about how, you know, way back in the day after World War III, the entire Earth was ruined, suffering from radiation storms and insect plagues and whatnot. And how uh, a plague had threatened to wipe out the few humans who survived the war. You know, <laughs> up until famous biochemist Mindtrop had discovered the vaccine and... Good thing he survived. Civilization finally started to rebuild, forming a new United Nations called the WFS, the World Federation of States. Hmm. Within a generation, the WFS was purchased by the Universal Insurance Company. Uh, how is there still an insurance company? Isn't there only like a few people <laughs> left on Earth? And some of them are like, you know, we need insurance. Who then passed the Compulsory Longevity Act. And now rule the world oh, as the compulsory. company. compulsory. That's why there's suicide nets everywhere. Compulsory why longevity. Why force everyone to do long life? Because of how the human population was so low after World War III. Oh, so they're demanding everyone procreate? And live forever, apparently. Well, yeah, but at some point that's going to be unsustainable. Do they learn nothing? You're not wrong. Actually, uh, there are no children in this story. There's no mention of them. We don't actually... Oh. There are inferences made that the population is kept at a stable number, but not really the manner in which that's accomplished. Huh. Okay, continue. So Ken is heading to Dykeman's summer cottage for some reason, but decides at the last minute, on his own spur-of-the-moment whim, to change the destination to the forest where the light from the sky had crashed earlier. That's pretty weird that these are, an op are options already preset into the <laughs> auto. The blue-skinned android autopilot tells Ken... That, that area is currently under flight restrictions, so they can't go there. When he tries to pull company rank and asks to speak to the android supervisor, the android hits a few buttons on the... What? The android has a supervisor? Truly a dystopian <laughs> future. The android hits a few buttons on the console and sabotages the helicopter engine by blowing up the rotors. <laughs> what? Why? The entire helicopter crashes. Into a river, fortunately. Um, yay? And despite basically drowning over the course of a very tense page, a boat arrives out of nowhere and pulls Ken aboard. Oh, lucky. And why? It's Vic Wartman, the company executive who runs the hunt club. What the hell? Turns out it's just a crazy wild coincidence that Vic was in the river at the time. Sure. Driving a boat towards an anti-aircraft installation. He's still being hunted, right? This hasn't ended? Um... Let's just never mention that again. Okay. <laughs> and he invites Ken along since he's there anyway. They reach the anti-aircraft and missile installation. Sure. The boat pulling up to a dock where Ken sees a ton of company men at work on various tasks. Oh, and several androids as well. Mm. He tells Vic that he needs to talk to him, but Vic Wartman says there's no time. A helicopter's, busy man. A helicopter's coming in ten minutes to pick them up. Because I was out on my boat. And he needs to hand out orders to all these NPCs. When the helicopter arrives, Dykeman's assistant Besser is on board. And he initially says Ken can't come with them. But Vic says Ken is supposed to be there. Director's orders. Hmm. 
As they take off, Ken asks where they're going, and is told they're headed toward the thing that blew up outside the city. What thing, Ken asks? A bomb? It wasn't a bomb, Besser tells him. It was a spaceship. Hmm. Don't look at me like I'm off my rocker. It's a spaceship, all right. A spaceship, by damn. Complete with crew. Oh, aliens or people? You'll find out. Well, actually, the story's called Alien Night, so... <sighs> hint, hint. I mean, spoiler alert. Uh-huh. Besser says that one of the three ships blew up in the air, and a second ship was caught by the blast and crashed in the forest outside the city. They pass the first crash site to find a lake of glass a hundred yards across. Pretty. And the helicopter follows a trail of destruction to the second crashed ship, which skipped across the earth like a stone skips across the water. <laughs> the crashed spaceship lies in three separate pieces, debris scattered all around and between them. Androids were sent in first to confirm there's no radiation, and have been setting up spotlights to illuminate the area. Dykeman's already there, and when he asks what Ken's doing there, Vic says he's there on director's orders. Mm, it seems suspicious. How did the director even know that he had gotten picked up out of the river? Which Ken thinks must be an outright lie. <laughs> Quote, something was radically wrong here. <laughs> so Dykeman and Besser head toward the front section of the crashed ship, piloting a vehicle described as a centipede. Ugh. And they specifically order Vic and Ken to stay at the helicopter. Which is why, the moment they leave, Vic hops into a centipede of his own to go inspect the engine section. And Ken figures he may as well go with. Some androids have cut a hole into the alien hull, and they head inside, quickly intuiting a few things about the aliens. Specifically, they have three fingers and a thumb, and are roughly the same height as humans. Lucky. But fuel lines are leaking. Oh no. But fortunately, the fuel is salt water. Ken explores the engines and a bunch of rooms and corridors for 15 minutes before announcing, Our aliens know how to handle a controlled sodium fusion reaction. Oh man, that's why they came to Earth. We have so much salt water. Now look, Wartman protested. Even I know enough about nuclear physics to know that's impossible. <laughs> Ken announces that they can almost certainly build their own sodium fusion engines by reverse engineering the ship. If we can unravel these motors, Wartman said, it means we've got space flight dumped right in our lap. What do they care? Well, maybe it'll re-energize the human race. You know, end that stagnation and whatnot. I mean, I guess, but if they start sending their very few humans out into space, like, they're going to have the same problem. There's more, Ken replies, showing Vic a section that implies they also had an interstellar drive as well as a planetary one. But there's a tunnel into the depths of the ship. And at the bottom of the tunnel, ashes. Quote, something, don't ask me what, literally burned down the crew. Something piled them, unconscious or dead, down there and tried to reduce them to ashes. Ooh. They head back to the landing pad for the helicopter to find an angry dykeman. He's angry that they didn't wait for him. Of course. Who becomes slightly less angry when Ken gives his report about the interstellar drive and the sodium reactor. Ooh. Dykeman replies by telling Ken and Vic that they've started arming the androids just in case aliens show up to try to blow up the crashed ship to stop humans from getting a hold of its technology. Hmm. Because, you know... Prime directive. Androids with guns are going to be very effective against that kind of thing. <laughs> Superior technology? Suddenly, the company director approaches in his personal helicopter. Dykeman orders Ken and Vic to stay, but Vic says he'll be right back, and he hops into a centipede and heads toward the forward section of the crashed ship. 
damned flighty idiot, Dykeman says. And Ken wonders if Dykeman's seen Warpman's name on the list of hunt clubs he's given him. The director climbs from the helicopter, and with him comes a girl. Why, the girl from earlier, who is what being a hunted. The director asks for a briefing, and Dykeman introduces Ken, saying, You know Huber? Huber? Kenneth Huber. Oh. But the director's never heard of Ken before. Hmm, called it. Which is when the girl says, I suggested he be brought along. Hmm, so she can kill him? I wish you'd keep me notified of things, Loira, Dykeman says. His, nice name. His voice showing annoyance. That's a direct quote. His voice showing annoyance. Because <laughs> it was like blue. <laughs> oh no, that'd be like uh, orange. Orange, I think, would be annoyance. So, the girl is Loira. Ugh, what a name. And the director introduces himself as Robert Frey. Dykeman starts briefing them by saying that they think the ship was piloted by robots. And that's when Ken breaks in to announce the discovery of all the burned bodies. There's a bit of crosstalk about the anti-aircraft missile installation being on the lookout for the third ship. And the director says that right before the ships appeared, there was a burst of radiation that knocked out all radio reception across the city. Ooh. Turns out there have been several similar bursts in the last few years. Their origin point somewhere near the Hudson Bay. And they didn't bother investigating? Ever. The director announces he wants to inspect the ship to look for star charts. And he and Dykeman head toward the wreckage while Ken and Loira have a quick chat. Ken asks her why she was in a hunt. And she says she wasn't in a hunt. She merely pretended she was in a hunt in order to save Ken from his hunt. Oh, weird. But what was she pulling a knife on him for then? And why was the other dude following her? Yeah. Yeah. This seems inconsistent. I agree. They argue a bit, mostly with Ken asking Loira why he should trust her. Exactly. Well, she says he has no choice, and she saved his life three times already. Oh, really? Just on her word. <laughs> Dude, I saved your life like three times. She refuses to say what she has to do with Vic Wartman, who uh, also said that he should be there for the crash ship. Mm -hmm. But she hands Ken a vial of acetone. Oh, Nail polish remover, saying he'll know when to use it. Ugh. Suddenly there's a burst of gunfire, and a bunch of the spotlights on the ship are shot out. Do do do. Ken and Loira start to run when a centipede roars up, Vic Wartman piloting the vehicle and running over a few androids as he does. Ah, screw them. He tells Loira to stay there, and for Ken to grab a submachine gun in the passenger seat. An explosion lights up the distant forest, and Vic says that's the anti-aircraft installation. Ooh, uh-oh. Quote, the bastards must have had men planted in the crew I left there. Don't know where he got that idea. <laughs> Vic runs to the helicopter and gets it in the air, while Dykeman's assistant Besser arrives and contributes nothing useful. A whining fills the air. The third alien ship is arriving, blacking out the stars. Wartman, who's already in the air in his helicopter decides to pilot the helicopter towards the third ship. What? Why? Which starts backing off. Really? There's the weakness, Ken said. They can't handle the thing in an atmosphere. Even a copter will throw them off. What? I agree. Physics, dude. The giant spacecraft decides to avoid the helicopter by accelerating vertically until it disappears. Um, is this this nonsense about, like, elephants and mice? <laughs> The shooting has stopped, and Besser says whoever was attacking them has disappeared into the trees. Inexplicably. But Ken has an idea. He heads towards one of the androids that was run over by the centipede. 
Come on, Besser said. Leave it alone. It's only a chunk of meat. Meat? Biological androids. Oh no, that's horrifying. It's kind of Westworld style. Yeah, which makes it horrifying that he's like, I'm just going to run these over. But Ken has an idea. He inspects the hands of the android to find small circles around the base of the little fingers. The little fingers? The littlest fingers. Both of them. Taking the acetone that Loira gave him, he rubs a bit across the blue forehead of the android. Why would he know to do that? To reveal white skin underneath the blue paint. It was a person. My god, Besser says. They must have agents in key positions everywhere, Ken realizes. They're not androids at all. They're aliens. Yep, and he ran them over. Some of them, anyway. The director, Loira, and Dykeman return to inform everyone. How did she know that acetone would reveal an alien? (laughs) Is she an alien? Maybe you'll find out. The director, Loira, and Dykeman return to inform us that a burst of radiation hit Universal City at the same time as the explosion at the anti-aircraft installation. Communications across the entire city are dead. Oh no. All company installations are likely compromised. Do you think this was all just a setup to get people on their toes and stop being so, like, dreary and (laughs) suicide prone? And the city is effectively sealed off from the world. The director's helicopter lands, the autopilot bringing it down. There's no one on board. Vic Wartman is missing. Suspicious. Katu, some amount of hours later, Ken and Dykeman are back in the city, huddled outside the administration building with an NPC named Johnson. Johnson. It's a few hours before sunrise, and Johnson reports that five androids slash aliens are holed up in the control center of the company administrative building. Ugh, not admin. Dykeman says they'll be able to hold that building for days and pick off anyone who approaches from the high windows. Why would anyone want a good admin? (laughs) So Ken orders Johnson to gather up a few other NPCs and attack the building in beetles, which are apparently smaller versions of the centipedes. Sure like their bug motif. (laughs) Yes, they do. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense, because wouldn't bugs be like one of the only things that survived after nuclear fallout? that's very true. Maybe not one of the only, but... Some of the only things. Um, now that you mention that, insects are repeatedly mentioned, and there's no mention of any other kind of mammals or anything. <laughs> Anyhow, within a single page of action, Dykeman and Ken make it to the top of the building. <laughs> wow. Raid style? Raid style. Yes. All of the kung fu is implied. Oh. I don't <laughs> like implied kung fu. I like blatant kung fu. In your face kung fu. Gratuitous kung fu. <laughs> They reach the top floor to find it empty. The control room vandalized, cables cut and strewn about. A bright light comes through the windows and Ken shouts for them to get down. And a second later, a shockwave shatters the glass. Apparently the crashed alien ship outside of the town has exploded or been blown up. (laughs) And the shockwave hit the building and shattered all the glass. (laughs) Dykeman assumes that the director, Loira, and Besser were all probably killed in the blast. He should not assume that. That's the end of any spaceflight dream, he sighs. Oh, what a... wow, he gave up quickly. No, it isn't, Ken said fiercely. Maybe we've lost the star drive, but I can still duplicate their planetary drive. From his brain? From seeing it once, he can build a new one. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. That's how engineering works. Yep, science. I was afraid of that, Dykeman says. Ken is clobbered on the head and falls to the floor, unconscious. They finally got him. 
He wakes up at Dykeman's house, where Dykeman's assistant... Weirdly naked. <laughs> where Dykeman's assistant, Besser, is still alive and admits to planting the bomb that blew up the crashed ship. Dykeman wants to question Ken about who Loira is and who she works for, but Besser says it's pointless. Ken doesn't know anything. You know nothing. What follows is a delightful info dump, wherein Besser and Dykeman admit to being aliens. Ah, there you go. They declare that their race is very similar to humans, which is how they went undetected for so long. And their plan was to wait for human civilization to collapse within the next century or so. (laughs) Uh, Probably good call. And then just take the planet once civilization collapses. It is inevitable. Because it turns out that all the hunt clubs, all the suicidal tendencies, all the reckless behavior that leads to the need for Hetfields and suicide nights on every building... It's all a part of a psychological syndrome, which is a side effect of the longevity drug. Obviously. Why, then why would they allow suicide? That's when they would just let everyone keep killing themselves till there's no humans left. Seems faster. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) And Dykeman says that the psychological syndrome will become so widespread in the next 50 years, it's inevitable that civilization will collapse. Ken sneers at Dykeman, saying, quote, you aren't even capable of wholesale extermination. Yeah, so they're allowing the hunt clubs, which means anyone remaining are going to be the hardy ones who are willing to fight. <laughs> so this seems like a really poor way to self-destruct society. But you are capable of letting a race die by your inaction. Don't feed me your idealistic drivel. Bah. Dykeman springs to his feet angrily and says that his race had faced the same decision. They almost went all in for perpetual boredom, too. But then decided... Well, you put it that way, no one's going to choose that. <laughs> but then decided to explore the stars instead. After a bit more arguing, Dykeman leaves to adjust the Hetfield, so that it gives everyone in the city suicidal impulses. They're moving up the plan. So wait, they're not sitting there through inaction. They're like actively and poorly trying to enact. Oh no, there's uh, something's happened that has made them adjust the timetable. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's why he kept asking who Loira is. Something going on there. Besser, meanwhile, explains that Loira's organization, whoever they are, was responsible for the EMP blast that knocked out communications. But the source of the blast has been found north, near Hudson's Bay, and the last alien ship is on its way to destroy it. Then Besser shoots Ken, and he dies. (laughs) Ah, abrupt. Except that he doesn't because the gun mysteriously doesn't fire. <laughs> Loira's there to save the day. Lucky. She kills Besser and then declares that her and Vic Wartman are time travelers from the future. Of course they are. Why the fuck not? <laughs> Here to save the Earth's past. But there's no time to elaborate. Because they've got to stop Dykeman from making the Hetfield make everyone kill themselves. Oh, Jesus. Which has actually already started. All the citizens of Universal City are stumbling in a daze toward the river, where presumably they're all planning to mass drown. Two pages of thrilling action commence. Uh Uh-huh. And end with the good guys winning. Yay! Yay! Who are the good guys? Um, it would be Ken and Time Traveler Loira. Oh, okay. So basically they just knock out the heterodyne field and everyone wakes up and they're like, Oh, why was I gonna kill myself? Oh, I guess I'll go (laughs) home. So confusing. Um, actually, I did summarize what basically happens here. Dykeman is in a flying car, 
mm-hmm. which is an alien flying car because they aren't actually flying cars on Earth. But there's an alien flying car. Yeah, now? we don't know where, where he did gets this it. Come well, from? he's an alien, so I guess he has his own. And he's at the top of the Universal Building where the Hetfield originates. And Ken sets the autopilot on a helicopter to crash it into the alien car. How is this an option? And then there's a massive explosion and it destroys the head field and everyone wakes up. Okay. (laughs) And those uh, android pilots are apparently expendable. Yep. Sure are. Cut to the epilogue. Loira and Ken relax on a cafe patio. Mm, Oh good, I'm so glad they are lovers now. Post-coitus, perhaps. (laughs) Let's just imply coitus. Why not? Sure. And Loira tells Ken her entire story. She's from a few hundred years in the Earth's future. In a future where the aliens won and successfully invaded the Earth after civilization collapsed. There aren't many humans left, and she likens her life to the reservation system created in the 1800s for the American natives. Except worse, because she describes humans as, quote, useless pets without any dignity. I feel like there's some commentary here, and I'm just gonna let it go. (laughs) Loira, Vic Wartman, and one other person Ken has never met managed to steal a time machine that the aliens won't invent for another 200 years. And they came back to the present, where the third unnamed time traveler infiltrated an alien base in Africa and engineered the entire scenario with the crashed ship. Okay. She says that she came back specifically to meet Ken. Why Ken? Because it was recorded in her past that Ken died in a hunt. A hunt club hunt. Okay, so did a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. he was, quote, one of the few in this world who could understand the alien drive if he had a chance to see one. (laughs) How could she possibly know that? Because future. Okay. (laughs) He's dead. So they tried to make sure that Ken would see the alien drive which would hopefully change history by reinvigorating civilization while also informing humanity of the alien threat. I feel like turning off that uh, suicide-inducing field would also reinvigorate society. (laughs) Oh no, the uh, the head field only made people want to kill themselves when the aliens took it over. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was the psychological um, side effects of the longevity drug that made them want to kill themselves. Uh. (laughs) Although they're still all on that drug. Yep. (laughs) Anyway, she figured that uh, once Ken saw the crashed ship's engine, everyone would unite against the aliens, and it'd be a common goal that would stop civilization from collapsing and stuff. Really? Oh, yeah. I forgot about this. Ken asks about the suicide syndrome that they all have because of longevity drugs. And Loira says they'll probably be able to figure something out to (laughs) solve it. You know, mm-hmm. with science. 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 Why haven't they figured it out yet? They haven't scienced it enough yet. Sure. But finally, at long last, the reckoning arrives. Post-coitus, post-cafe. Loira has changed her own future so she can no longer exist. Which is why after a three-page info dump <laughs> that includes an extended, heartfelt, sentimental goodbye... Loira vanishes in front of Ken's Uh, eyes. Oh, come on. This is another one of those stupid time paradox ones that makes no sense. Correct. So dumb. She only disappeared after the info dump. How convenient. Very convenient. He stands up and sees mayflies. They only live for one day, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. How ironic. 
Not really. And thus we reach the final words in the story. Mm -hmm. But the heat of the summer's night was lost in the fresh breezes from the river, and the morning was wonderfully cool. The air was like wine. No, he thought. Wine, good wine is old. It's like cider. New, fresh. Okay. Sweet. Sure. The end. Thick and sickly. Alien night. Mm-hmm. I love that story. <laughs> Please tell me why you love this story. I love it because the whole thing takes place in about 12 hours. Mm-hmm. It starts off as the most dangerous game in future dystopia. Mm-hmm. Turns into alien crashed ship and infiltration of society. Mm-hmm. And then warps to time travelers. Ugh, ridiculous. What more could you want? We got those biological androids. Mm-hmm. The only thing this is missing is zombies. Hmm. I guess. <laughs> and maybe lasers. Uh, there might have been lasers. Well, there's submachine guns. That's always fun. Yeah, I guess. What did you think? I thought it was a mess. It was a giant, stinking mess. Stinking? What yeah. did it stink like? It stunk like poor planning and time paradox. <laughs> and well. lazy plot devices. Oh, yes, there were several of those. And that was Alien Night by Thomas Scorcia. Thomas Scorcia is the award-winning author of several books, including... The Glass Inferno, which became the Towering Inferno, as well as the Prometheus Crisis, The Nightmare Factor, Blowout, The Gold Crew, and a collection of short stories called Caution, Inflammable. Wow. This has been the Everett Book Club. Visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com. Or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. Or go to our Instagram. I've been accidentally leaving it alone most of the summer, but I'm updating it more often now. Yay! You could look at books. Books. That's pretty much it. Lots more books. Books. If you or your organization are building an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests. Please note, there's no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism. So, Marguerite, on a scale from Gilligan to the Dharma Initiative, how lost are we right now? Seriously, I don't feel like this is the Earth anymore. What gave you that idea? The rings or the three moons? Hmm, it was mostly the acid spitting camels, actually. Are you sure there are sentient robots around here? I'm less sure with each passing moment. Are days supposed to last 28 and a half hours? Yes. Okay, problem solved then. Ugh, the compass is pointing snorth again. But that's the tentacle forest, and we already went through that. Yeah, 14 probings is enough for one day. Mm, reluctantly agreed. Let's check out that Oasis Mirage. That should give us a false hope until it doesn't. I'm down. I love drinking sand. It smells really bad over here. Oh, that's because of uh, cat poop. Oh, yeah.